a noted dog lover, decided one Saturday morning he was going to pour a new couple of squares of sidewalk in front of his house. And now this guy loved dogs, okay? Everybody knew he loved dogs. He always spoke several times a year at the dog club. He always judged the annual dog contest. He had written a lot of beautiful essays about dogs that had been published in the local newspaper. He named his children Benji and Rin Tin Tin. I mean, this guy loved dogs and everybody knew it. And so he's out on this Saturday morning and he, he pours a couple of squares of nice wet cement, smooths it out, goes into the garage to clean up. And when he comes back, he sees that there are dog prints through the wet cement. Well, now he's got to get out the hose. He's got to get out the cement. He's got to mix up a fresh new batch. He's got to make it smooth and trowel it out again till it's nice and pretty. And he, he finishes and he cleans up and he goes into the house to get a drink of water, comes back outside. He actually sees the dog now walking through the wet cement. And so he yells and screams and he chases the dog off his property and He's got to start all over. He gets the, the, the cement and he patches it and he trowels it and he's, he's putting things away and he gets into the house to eat lunch. And as he's fixing lunch, he hadn't been in the house two minutes yet. He looks out the window. This dog is now sitting down in the wet cement. Well, the guy grabs his gun, runs outside, shoots the dog in the head and kills him dead. Kills the dog. Neighbor hears the shot, comes outside. He sees what's happened. He says, I thought you loved dogs. He says, I love dogs in the abstract. I do not love dogs in the concrete. Okay, I deserve some of that. I deserve some. That's fine. That's fine. Give and take. Give and take. Man, if you had grown like that, I would think you'd amen like that every now and then. Amen. Amen. Okay, here's, here's kind of the point. Follow me if you will. There are lots of ideas that we agree with and we support. There are lots of concepts we understand, but it's different when it becomes concrete. And I think we talk about God a lot of the times in the abstract. We don't mean to, but, but I think we think about God and even act towards God like God is a concept, while the concrete experience of God is so much bigger and so much better and grander and more glorious than anything we could ever dream up or imagine. On January 2nd of this year, we said we were going to spend all of 22 exploring what it means to reflect the glory of God. Remember back in January, we said, we believe we're called to something so much bigger than just this GCR church. We're called to something so much more and grander and holier than just our own desires and dreams and wishes. We are called to reflect God's glory. The creator of heaven and earth has revealed his glory to us. We know who he is. He has revealed to us the glory of who he is. He has shared with us his glory, and he has called us to reflect that glory in everything that we do. 2 Corinthians 3 says, we all reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. God's glory is changing us. And as we are being changed, we reflect his divine glory everywhere we go with everything we are becoming. 
We've been using Exodus 34 as our starting point for this year-long sermon series. I believe these three verses in Exodus 34 are the most important verses in the entire Bible as it relates to our God. These verses tell us who God is. At the end of chapter 33, God is talking to Moses, and this is after the great sin of the golden calf. And God is promising to be with Moses and to lead them to the promised land. But Moses wants real. He wants concrete, right? God, I want to see your face. I have seen the smoke on the mountain. I have heard your voice in the burning bush. I have watched your finger right on the tablets of stone. But God, I want to see your face. I want to know who I'm dealing with here. Show me your glory. Verse 18, show me your glory. And our God says, okay, that's, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Verse 19, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Not his face, his goodness. God's glory. Look at verse 22. God says, when my glory passes by. This is about God's character. This is God's integrity. These are God's eternal qualities. This is who he is. This is our God's very name. Chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In the middle of their atrocious sin against God, you think it was good for the people to hear this? God forgives. God is forgiving. Faced with the reality of their rebellion, you think it was good for these people to hear God say, my very name is forgiveness. Church, that is the concrete reality about our God. His very name is forgiveness. Forgiveness is who God is, and that is very, very good news. You got three words here in the Hebrew, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Let's look at them real quick. Wickedness, the Hebrew word in this verse is avon. Avon means to bend or to twist or to distort, right? Uh, sometimes it's, it's used like when you take something that's straight and you make it crooked. That's avon. Avon means to use something in a way it was never intended to be used. And so a lot of the times in the Bible, this word is translated depravity or perversity, but, but here it's wickedness. And then rebellion, the, the Hebrew word is pisha. Pisha, it just means transgression, or sometimes it means revolt. Like the Hebrew word pisha literally means to break a trust or to end a relationship. That's pisha. And then this sin word, chtaw. It's like with a taw on the end, okay? Chtaw. You've heard this before. It just means to miss the mark, 
to, to, to not hit the target, okay? It's, it's to not achieve a standard you're hoping to achieve or not to live up to uh, the measure that you've been given. And so that's, that's sin. And, and I think these three words, I think together they cover every possible kind of disobedience there is against God. These three words tell us that, that we humans have not left one single kind of disobedience against God untried. And these three words also, I think, show us without question, without doubt, that our God is able and he is willing to forgive everything and anything done against him by his people. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Is that a good thing for you to hear today? Isn't it? Amen. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Listen, church, we need to hear this. We need to understand this today. Our God is a forgiving God. That's who he is. And the Bible is unmistakably clear about this nature of our God. It's all over the Bible. Jeremiah 31, the Lord declares, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Micah 7, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression? You will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Isaiah 44, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 43, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses, but I, even I, am the Lord who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Amen, church? In your love, Isaiah 38, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. Amen, church? Amen. Psalm 103. Listen to the psalmist. He is quoting from Exodus 34. Nine times in the Old Testament, somebody quotes this passage from Exodus 34. Here's one of them in Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, verse 8, slow to anger, abounding in love. But when David gets to the part about forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, he doesn't just stop there. He goes on. The Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his love for those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us amen our God puts our sins out of sight out of reach out of existence they're gone that's our God God forgives sin all Sin, your sin, yeah, that sin, the one you're thinking about right now, he forgives it, and you need to hear that today. You're forgiven by the grace of God and by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. Our Lord Jesus tells a powerful story about the nature of our God, about the forgiveness of our God. It's in Matthew 18. We're going to spend most of our time here this morning because we need to hear this story. 
Matthew 18, I'm going to start reading in verse 23. This is our Lord Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. The king is ready to settle accounts. I don't know about you, but just that kind of language makes me nervous. I don't like that phrase, settle accounts. Settle accounts just makes me think about bills and checkbooks and receipts and those kinds of things. That phrase gives me the heebie-jeebies, does it you? Settle accounts just sounds kind of ominous, right? It sounds like impending doom, like when I clean out my truck and I've got to gather up all my receipts and hand them to Carrie Ann. And I stand there and I watch as she goes through my receipts. Whataburger, Barnes & Noble, Whataburger, Home Depot, Whataburger. You know? And the king keeps good books. He's got teams of well-trained and experienced accountants who keep track of every single penny. The king knows who owes him what. And he's got jailers to lock up those who don't pay. And on this day of account settling, the king's men bring to him a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. And we've got to get the full impact here. 10,000 talents. The first century Palestinian listening to Jesus' story would have known immediately that's incomprehensible. In fact, that's, that's impossible because if you convert talents to, to denarii and to a day's wages for a common laborer and you add it all up and you, you put it into U.S. dollars today, this one man owes the king two and a half billion dollars. That's two cowboy stadiums and a linebacker. That's a lot of money. Somehow this one individual servant stole and cheated and lied enough to rack up two and a half billion dollars of debt toward his king. And what's even more impossible than that total is thinking this guy could ever pay that back. There's no way. This man can't pay back this sum. He can't work enough. He can't do enough. He can't live long enough to pay back this money. This guy could work 50 hours a week for 150 years, and he wouldn't even put a dent in this kind of debt. And so the king orders that the man and his wife and his children and his house and his land and his animals and his clothes, everything he has, all of that's going to be sold. That wouldn't even begin to pay the debt. If they sold everything, including the man and his family themselves, he wouldn't pay off this debt. No matter what they do, this debt is still going to be there. And so I think Jesus in his storytelling is just reaffirming us or to us. Reaffirming is not the right word. What am I looking for? He's reiterating how hopeless this man's situation really is. doesn't matter what happens. The debt is always going to be there. He, he can't pay it back. 
And so this man falls to his knees in an act of desperate supplication. Please, he begs. Please, I'll pay everything back. And he knows he can't. He knows it. The king knows it. The accountants know it. Everybody knows he cannot pay this debt. Listen. The king canceled the debt and let him go. Amen? Listen. Church, we've got to grasp the enormity of this. This is why Jesus tells the story. The man is in an impossible situation. He's drowning in debt. He can't pay it back. It is impossible for this man to pay back this debt. He cannot make things right with his king. The debt's too big. This man is doomed to die. This can't be fixed. So the king canceled the debt and let him go. Amen. See, when you hear a gospel truth that changes everything, and you know that truth, that's when you say amen. This is truth, church. This is concrete. This is for us. Now, what is it that moves the king? Why did the king do this? Because the amount of the debt is incomprehensible. But what's even a bigger shock than that is the fact that the king repays it, or or the king cancels it. It's over, right? How does that happen? The debt's canceled. Everything's totally forgiven, right? The slate is wiped clean. We're even now. How? The master took pity on him. That's what Jesus says. The king was touched by this man's plight and his plea. The king forgives him because the king loves him. He forgives him because he wants a relationship with him. The king does not want this man's debt to be in the way between a relationship with him and this man. The king does not want anything to be between him and his people. And so he takes our great debt and he just cancels it. He wipes it away. There's nothing between us now. It's astonishing, isn't it? Not being given the eternal death we rightly deserve. Being handed by God a righteousness and an eternal life of relationship with him that we don't deserve. It's amazing. Wonderful. The matchless grace of Jesus. Amen. And it's not free. Right? The king here, he lost thousands and millions of dollars. He willingly sacrificed a couple of Fort Knoxes just to have a relationship with this man, which points us to the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The master of the kingdom of heaven willingly gave up his own life. He purposefully left his glory at the right hand of the Father. And he lives with us in this world and he suffers and dies for us and he becomes our sin for us and he takes our great debt of sin to the cross with him and he forgives us and he takes the debt away. Praise God indeed. What a powerful and glorious picture of our God who forgives all wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And I would love to end the sermon right here. But I've still got like 15 minutes. Plus, Jesus doesn't end the story right here. This story does not end with the king forgiving the servant. 
the story continues and it takes a tragic twist. It gets ugly. It gets sorry. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Amen. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called that servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. God, the, the heavenly father, this same king who was so merciful and compassionate and forgiving, now he's angry, Jesus says. And he orders that the servant be locked up and tortured until he can pay back the debt, which we already know means he's going to be locked up and tortured forever. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the money. Did you notice that little twist? We're not talking about this man's family or his possessions anymore. Now we're just talking about this one guy. No mercy, no forgiveness, just anger. What happened? The forgiveness the servant received from the king did not change him. The forgiveness he enjoyed had no impact on this man's heart. The forgiveness didn't change his attitude. Being forgiven did not transform his life. The mercy of the king should have so radically changed this man's life and his values and his priorities that he would have showered the same mercy and forgiveness on everybody in his life. But it had no effect. It had no impact. Instead, he takes advantage of the king's forgiveness. I'll take all the benefits of God's forgiveness and it won't change one lick the way I treat my brother. That's what makes the king mad because that's what makes it personal. The servant has taken the amazing gift and he's insulted the giver. Look at verse 33. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And then Jesus interprets the parable for us because sometimes we're kind of slow, you know. The Lord wants to make sure we don't miss it. And see, he, he makes it unmistakably clear in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is why Jesus told the story. And it ought to send chills up our spines. Because this is not some isolated teaching. This is a central doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a requirement 
for everybody who wants to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus makes it so clear. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And then Jesus says after the prayer, because we're kind of slow, he says, if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive people their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's not the only place. Mark 11, these are the words of Jesus. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. It's not the only place. Luke 6, these are the words of Jesus. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The Holy Son of God is completely consistent on this. There's no way around it. God is going to judge you the same way you judge me. God's going to cut me the same amount of slack I cut you. It kind of makes me want to stop judging anybody ever. The benefit of the doubt you give to others, God will give to you. Same measure. If I defend you, God will defend me. If I attack you or stand by you, if you forgive me or hold a grudge against me, if you let it go with other people or you hold on to it, our God takes that into account and he directly applies it to the way he deals with us. It's kind of like the golden rule, except it's do unto others as you would have God do unto you. Because if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart, the heavenly king will haul you away to jail and throw away the key. Now, I believe this. There's too much of this in Jesus' teachings for this not to be true. I unapologetically believe that this is part of our motivation for forgiving others. If I don't forgive you, God won't forgive me. Period. But I don't want us to just leave it at that, okay? I, I, I want to go just a little deeper with this, and I want us to, to think about how did this story go so bad so fast? How did this story start out so good and turn so wicked and twisted and evil? What, what made this man so mean and so unwilling to forgive just a tiny fraction of what he himself had been forgiven? I mean, the, the king had torn up the ledger. The books had all been destroyed. The, the pencils and the calculators had all been put away. The scoreboard had been torn down. And the servant couldn't do the same thing because somehow he totally missed the significance of what had happened for him. Somehow when the king released him and forgave his debt, he didn't get it. He thought he had gotten away with something. Like, like maybe he had pulled a fast one perhaps. But no, this, this servant was not being let off the hook. He hadn't escaped anything. What really happened was the king examined the debt. He looked at the debt in great detail. He knew from the servant's credit rating he could never pay him back. 
And so he just forgave the debt himself. He was willing to quit keeping score. He was willing to quit marking in the ledger. He was willing to completely forgive the debt so they could live in relationship again. Church, that's what forgiveness is about. It's about relationship. It's about removing the barriers between us and God and between us and each other. Listen, if forgiveness is not about relationship, what's it about? It is at its core about living together in righteous relationship with God and with others. The old German poet, Heinrich Heine, you've probably never heard of him, and I never would have either, except for this little passage in his memoir. Listen to Mr. Heine. If I said it again, we'd giggle, I guess. Okay, listen to this. A real person wrote this. My nature is the most peaceful in the world. All I ask, listen to how low maintenance this guy is. All I ask is a simple cottage, a decent bed, good food, some flowers in front of my window, and a few trees beside my door. Then if God wanted to make me completely happy, he would let me enjoy the spectacle of six or seven of my enemies dangling from those trees. I would forgive them all the wrongs they had done me from the bottom of my heart, for we must forgive our enemies, but not until they are hanged. The reason for us to forgive others is because we want the relationship back. And that's hard to do when you're keeping score. As long as you're focused on what somebody owes you, you spend all of your time, you spend a big chunk of your days, and then eventually you spend a lot of your years trying to figure out, how am I going to get paid back? How can I be proved right? How can he or she be punished for hurting me? But once you have forgiven your brother or your sister from the heart, you've got all the time in the world. You've got time to put the calculator away and go for a walk. You've got time to unplug the scoreboard and have dinner together. You've got time to erase the books and worship and serve together. And so while I believe doing to others as you would have God do unto you isn't wrong, I like that, I think it's biblical, I think to take it deeper and apply it the way our God intended and the way the Bible teaches it is more like do unto others as God has already done unto you. That's what it says in Colossians 3.13. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Similar thing in Ephesians chapter 4, right at the end of the chapter. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God. Forgiving others is not about letting people off the hook so God will let you off the hook. It's about understanding deeply that you have been forgiven. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, the whole, has been nailed to the cross. 
I don't bear it anymore. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I've been forgiven by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus. You are forgiven. Our God has looked at your great debt, and he has studied it in detail. He knows all of it. All the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Every bit of it. And he's wiped it away. He has removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. We're even. How? Praise God. And when God has stopped keeping score on you, it feels kind of foolish keeping score on the other people in your life. You feel sort of petty wanting to write people off after they hurt you seven times or even 70 times seven times when you consider how many times you have been forgiven by the Lord. God forgives your wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who he is. And he does it because he loves you. And he does it because he wants a relationship with you. Let that sink in. You're forgiven because he loves you. And he wants to live with you in a relationship. And I think once you comprehend the, the concreteness of that, once you take that into your heart and your soul, how would you ever pass up an opportunity to show that same love and forgiveness to somebody else? Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story one time called The Capital of the World. And it was about a son and a father who got sideways and stopped talking to each other. And eventually it got so bad the son moved away. And the father and the son went for years. Didn't talk to each other, never saw each other. And then the father had a change of heart and he wanted to find his son and he wanted to fix their relationship. And he couldn't find him anywhere. He looked everywhere, he asked everybody. Nobody knew where his son was. He needed to find his son. He wanted to make things right with his son. And so the father goes to the capital city of Madrid and he goes to the Madrid daily newspaper offices and he takes out a full page ad. And the ad just said, Paco, please meet me at 12 noon tomorrow in front of the newspaper office. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day at 12 noon, there were more than 800 young men named Paco standing outside that newspaper office. Church forgiveness is humanity's greatest need. That's what put Jesus on the cross. And I'm assuming there are several Pacos in the room this morning. You need forgiveness. You need to hear those three words. You are forgiven. I'm assuming there are a lot of people in here who need to give the gift of forgiveness to somebody. Somebody's wronged you. It's a big church, and that's okay. It's a big church, and there's people to forgive. You can say three words, can't you? I forgive you. Or, or what about these three words? Please forgive me. Now seems like a good time to do that, maybe. I'd like to, um, let's do this. Let's just spend a couple of minutes. We're already running late, right? You already feel like it's late. Um, but it's not, not yet. Um, 
Can I get all of our elders and ministers, can y'all just kind of slide out into the aisles just so people know where you are? And here's what I want to do. Um, we're going to sing a song. And if you feel led by the Spirit of God or compelled by His love for you to do this, I, I would ask you uh, a couple of things. I'll, I'll invite you to find one of us and let us pray with you this morning. If you need to talk to God about your need for forgiveness, we would like to say those words to God on your behalf. Please forgive her. Please forgive him. And then we'd like to say those three words to you after we pray. We'd like to say, you are forgiven. You are. You're forgiven. We need to hear stuff like this. And listen, if there's anything going on in this room that needs to be made right today, I don't know what it is. You do. If you need to say those three words to somebody, please forgive me. Would you do it right now? If you need to tell somebody today, I forgive you, I would invite you to do that right now. We're going to stand up, we're going to sing, and we're going to pray, and we're going to talk to each other, and we're going to make things right. And we're going to allow the forgiveness of our God to transform us and to transform our church. Because when we practice reflecting God's glory in here with each other, it'll transform us so that we can better reflect God's glory out there. Amen. Let's stand up, church. Let's sing and let's pray.